Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9 for the reading of today's scripture. We will be reading from Romans 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Horatius Bonner once wrote, God chooses not because he foresees that we would choose him or that we would believe, but for the very opposite reason. He chose us just because he foresees that we would neither choose him nor believe of ourselves at all. Election proceeds not upon foreseeing faith in us, but upon foreseeing unbelief. So even though the weather is really crazy right now and bipolar and the temperatures have been a bit chilly, springtime is actually here. And the evidence of that is everywhere around us. The trees are beginning to bud and you see leaves and the little flowers on the trees. And, and the ground is all turned green with grass and you know the, the weeds will have to knock down in a couple of months. And the wildflowers are beginning to emerge. Uh, last week, Kim and I and McKaylee were headed to Carson's baseball game that got canceled when we almost got there. Uh, but as we drove over the mountains near Arvin, um, you know, it was amazing to see how green uh, the mountains were. It's a beautiful sight every time it becomes spring. And the wildflowers are beginning to bloom and, and blanket the hillside. And it's actually one of my favorite times of year. It's one of my favorite things to see, you know, for, for all of its brown that we endure. Um, Throughout the months, springtime in the Antelope Valley and in Southern California is beautiful. So springtime is here, and and it's a wonderful time of year because this is the time where we kind of begin to emerge out of this pale gray winter into a vibrant world of color and a a world of new life. That's what what spring is about, new life. And, and we see that in the trees, we see it on the ground, we even see it in the baby critters that are beginning to emerge, you know. We'll, we'll be long and you'll see a bunch of little bitty rabbits running around here, you know. Especially as wet as it's been, there'll be another big rabbit population, right? Spring brings new life. And, and what holiday is it that we celebrate during the springtime, during this season of new life? Easter, that's right. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Son of the living God being raised to new life, which points us ultimately to our hope, which, by the way, is why we worship on Sunday. 
the new life that we have in him. By the way, I don't know if you realize, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the best attested to event in all of antiquity. There is more direct and indirect evidence, indirect evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any other event in ancient history and for any other person in ancient history. The resurrection of Jesus isn't simply some religious story that we tell one another and venerate. Actually, it is a historical event. It's a historical fact that took place in time and in space. And it validates the Word of God. And it gives us validation for the hope that we have in Christ. That's why, right, that's why we can, right, this, that's why the, the world is already celebrating Easter, right? This event changed the world. That's why everybody, uh, even those who aren't particularly religious and maybe even those who don't even believe, actually still celebrate Easter. This is why you can already find Cadbury cream eggs, right? That's why stores are already selling Easter baskets and chocolate bunnies and egg-shaped um, jelly beans. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed the world, and almost every person celebrates Easter. Just about everybody you know has plans to do something, whether it's to go on an Easter egg hunt somewhere or to gather together with their families and, and have an Easter dinner. In fact, our school district uh, still connects Easter with spring break, and many people have plans to do something during that time. So just about everybody celebrates Easter in some way, and it's, and it's one of one of the times of the year that people will finally make their way back to, to church. And it's a great opportunity for those of us in Christ to share the hope that we have in Christ with our family and our, our friends and our neighbors because everyone's already thinking about it anyway. It's already on our minds. But the problem with Easter, especially in our country, is that it's just become another American holiday. Another American holiday with its traditions and ex external trappings. It's become about, about candy and Easter eggs and bunnies and family get-togethers. And, and I want you to understand, those things, those are still good things. I'm not knocking those things. They're, they're not bad, especially, especially Easter ham. I'm all for that, right? And uh, the, the Reese's peanut butter, you know, in chocolate eggs. I'm all for that too. So those are good things. The problem isn't those things themselves. And, and the problem isn't that Easter is a pagan holiday, as, as you will hear on YouTube, because the, the popular you know, YouTube crazies will come out and start saying, you know, Easter, just like Christmas, is a pagan holiday, and yada, yada, yada. It's not. We can just settle that right now. But the problem isn't any of those things either. The problem is, is that so many people have really lost sight of the purpose of Easter. It's not just out there, though. It's also inside the church. The message of Easter in many churches has become diluted and watered down because so many who claim to, have, have, to claim to be Christians have lost sight of the real issue, the real reason that Easter is important to us. They've lost sight of why Easter is important in the first place. I've heard people talk about the real meaning of Easter is Jesus rose from the dead to give you the hope that you can then live a happy, more fulfilling life. I've actually heard those words. That Jesus' resurrection is about your personal happiness. That Jesus rose from the grave so that you can live your best life now. So that you can live the life that you want to live the way you want to live without any guilt to do what you want to do. And the resurrection just simply means victory for you and your health and your finances and your relationships. If you just believe enough, God will deliver those things to you. And even more, evangelical churches will not even talk, they'll, they'll, they'll only talk about the love of God that's demonstrated by the resurrection. Churches who, who really want to see people come to faith in Christ will simply just talk about the love of God demonstrated by the resurrection, failing to mention why Jesus was put to death in the first place. Now, they might say the words, well, Jesus died for our sins, which is true, but they fail to talk about or acknowledge the truth of why it was important for him to die for our sins. 
Why is Jesus' resurrection important? Why did Jesus die for our sins in the first place? Why was that necessary? The underlying truth that so many people fail to talk about is a truth that many people don't want to talk about or acknowledge or hear. I'll admit it, it's a truth that's hard to hear, but it's a truth that's foundational to the reason why we, we need redemption in the first place. It's a truth that makes the gospel necessary. And it's, the truth of, and it's the truth of God's holy wrath against sin and those who are in their sin. It's the truth that God's holy hatred and anger towards sin and sinners is, is righteous and just. The truth that sinners, because of their rebellion and their blasphemy and their love of sin, are under God's rightful justice and condemnation and are deserving of God's fury to be poured out on them. That's the truth that many people hate or refuse to acknowledge. Even at Easter, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty once wrote one of the most beloved hymns of our time. It's titled, In Christ Alone. And it's a song and a hymn that we sing here very often. We love that song. And it's a hymn that has been included in many modern-day hymn books. They are still printing those, by the way. And it's a song that, that, that many churches and different denominations sing. It's, it's like universal. Everybody loves that song. Well, one day there was a church, a theologically liberal Presbyterian church, who loved the song, approached the authors, uh, Townsend and Getty, and, he sa- and they said, we love the song, uh, and we'd like to have your permission to publish it in our hymn book, if we can make one change to the song. And, and, and understand, it, it's not unusual for denominations to rework hymns or songs to, f- to fit their theological commitments. Baptists' versions of hymns and Methodist versions of hymns will vary in some minor details and wording, um, especially in the older hymns. You will notice that there will be differences in wordings in, in different versions. But this was unusual because this was a newer hymn, and, and the change that they were asking for wasn't a minor theological issue. It was actually a big deal. You see, the line that they wanted to change occurs in verse 2 of the hymn. And, and verse 2 reads this way, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The church, for the most part, loved the song, but wanted to change the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. Why? Because they found the idea of God's wrath offensive. Right? This is a church that was supposed to be there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, wanted to change a foundational idea of the gospel. Right? The idea of God's wrath against sin and the idea that that wrath and was poured out on Jesus himself, that he endured on the cross to set us free, was offensive to them. They hated that idea. Well, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty denied their request, and they did so because they understood the gospel. The foundational, that foundational to understanding the good news of the gospel is that, and the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is understanding the bad news of man's sin and God's wrath against that sin. You see, the gospel doesn't make any sense without the bad news of man's condition and God's wrath. Without the wrath of God, the gospel doesn't really matter. As we said before, no one takes the medicine until they actually know what the diagnosis is. No one is going to have that surgery unless they understand the the critical issue the surgery fixes. No one embraces the good news of the gospel unless they understand the bad news the gospel saves them from. And so as much as people hate the idea of God's wrath and don't want to talk about it, it is the heart of the gospel message, and it's at the heart of why we celebrate Easter. And it's the answer to the question, why did Jesus die 
anyway. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons this morning. First, as I've mentioned, Easter is right around the corner, and we as a church have an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have in Christ with our friends and our family members and our neighbors and our community. We have an opportunity to take an event that they're already thinking about and then help them to see what it's all about. The second reason why we're talking about this and understanding the wrath of God is important here. Um, Because in our text, in this series, Paul addresses this issue, right? It's important for us to understand the wrath of God to understand what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 9. In fact, turn with me again to Romans 9. And we're going to begin all the way back at verse 19. And Paul writes, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, if you remember the context here of where we are, Paul, in in the first chapter eight, I mean, the first eight chapters of Romans, wrote a masterful exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he explained to us what the gospel is, the bad news of mankind's condition, and the good news that God has made a way for man to be saved from the wrath of God by faith in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. He then explained the blessings the gospel gives to those who come to faith in him. The promise is that if you believe, you will have peace with God. You who were once his enemies now are his family. You're at peace. And that you have access to God and his grace, that you can come to him at any time, anywhere, before the throne of grace and pour your heart out to him. And... Paul says that the love of God is also poured out into our hearts. And then he says that we have an eternal hope that no one can take from us. Those are the blessings the gospel gives. And then he explains how the gospel worked, how it is that Jesus can trade places with us and live for our righteousness, but then die for our sins. And then Paul explains that the gospel not only sets us free from the penalty of our sins, the, 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 the penalty that we deserve, but it also sets us free from the power of, of sin, that we can begin to walk in obedience. And then in chapter 8, Paul talks about the glorious hope the gospel gives, the hope that cannot be taken from us, that those who put their faith in Christ are completely safe in the hands of God, and they are secure forever because God is the author and perfecter of their faith. But then in chapter 9, Paul begins to address Again, a big objection to the gospel, an objection that threatens to undermine even the fullness of the Christian faith. And the objection essentially is like this. God promised in the Old Testament that He would save His people. And the Jews believed that they were God's people simply because they were Jewish. But the gospel says those who believe will be saved and those who don't won't. Well, then if that's true, then why do so many people who were Jews reject the gospel? which means they're not going to be saved. Based on that reasoning, either the gospel is false or God's promise to save His people has failed if the gospel is true because many of God's people people were rejecting the gospel. And Paul answers back and essentially says, being part of God's family and being one of His people has never been about our ethnicity. It's never been about our our nationality or family relationships or our religiosity or, or our traditions or even trying really, really hard to obey the law. Being part of God's family has never been about what mankind brings to the table. It's always been about what God and His mercy and what He does in His sovereign election. Paul clearly and explicitly says that salvation is the work of God, 100% the work of God, and He is the one who brings people into His family by His will. And He does so by His own sovereign choice. God elects those He will redeem. And, And this truth is something that many people wrestled with all the way up to now for 2,000 years. And, and there are two common objections that pop up that people bring up about this, and Paul addresses both of those in chapter 9 as well. The first one is is that that God choosing who He will redeem just simply isn't fair. That's the first one. God's not fair for doing that. Or, Or simply put, God is unjust for choosing some and not others. As if God owes anyone anything. But Paul but but Paul explained that God has the right 
to have mercy on whom He wills. That salvation isn't about God's justice. Salvation isn't about His fairness. Salvation is about His mercy. And the thing, that, that man, the thing that we need to realize is mankind deserves justice and he deserves God's wrath. And if, and if it were about being fair, then everyone ought to be punished. Everyone ought to be condemned for their sin because that's what we deserve. That's who we are. But God in his mercy decided not to give a lot of people that justice. Instead, to redeem them, he decided to spare them and show mercy to them. And he did so by his own will, and Paul makes that clear. Because the truth is, God has the right to choose. Why? Because he's God. And God isn't obligated to do anything he doesn't want to do. And he certainly doesn't owe us anything. Not even life. But he graciously gives it to us. Now, the second objection is the one that's right here in verse 19. If you remember last week... The essence of this objection is, if, if, if this doctrine of God's election is true, right? If God is sovereign, then why does God hold us responsible? How can we be responsible if God is in control? Because it's His fault. If you remember, we talked about that, that, that somehow what we do is God's fault because He makes us do it. But understand, Paul responds to this objection by saying, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, the, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Paul reminds us that, that his audience, and his audience, that, that mankind has no basis. We don't have a, a moral standing on which to call God to account. We don't have a basis on which to question what he does. And he used the analogy of a, of a potter and, and the clay to demonstrate the vast difference between God and man. And the truth that we explored is that God is vastly different than us. That we might be made in His image, but He is not like us. And He has the right, because He is the sovereign creator, to do with what He wants with His creation. Which, which is what Paul explains in verse 21. Has the, the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God has a right to use all of creation for His purposes and plans, including fallen humanity. God uses the lives and the free choices and the actions of sinful creatures who do what they want to do, but God uses and molds their lives and shapes them in such a way to accomplish His plan of redemption for His glory. Now, if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back and go to YouTube and listen to that message because we talked a lot about some important stuff and, uh, and not to mention that today's text is kind of a continuation of that same conversation. Now, Paul rhetorically asks, doesn't God have the right to use fallen humanity and their choices to shape them in a way that is useful to him and accomplishes his own purposes? And the answer is obviously, of course he does. God has the right to do whatever he sees fit. And then in that context, Paul reveals, begins to reveal to us the purpose that he, in which that he's doing these things. God, I mean, Paul writes, What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, let's just be honest. This is a difficult bit of Scripture. And it's difficult for... A few reasons. First, it's difficult because, as we've mentioned, this text talks about the reality of God's wrath, not something that people want to hear about. Paul says God desires to show His wrath on vessels of wrath. And by the way, a little bit later in this text, Paul's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of His wrath. That's tough stuff to have to deal with. The wrath of God is an important part of this text. Second reason why it's difficult is because the expression that Paul uses here, vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction. For many people, this is a very troubling phrase because many people think that this means that God specifically created people simply so that He could destroy them. That's how people read that. That God made people sinful just so He can pour out His wrath on them. This, This passage gives a lot of people great trouble and either they will just ignore it or try to explain it away somehow, or they use this as a justification to deny God's sovereignty, and even some use this as justification to deny faith. Well, why am I going to believe in a God like that? The third reason why this is difficult is because these four verses, though they're four verses, are actually one long run-on sentence. If you've read any of Paul's letters, you will find that he has a tendency to just kind of go on and on and on and on, and sometimes it's kind of hard to follow where he's going. I want you to notice there are no periods in these four verses until you get to verse 24. It's just one sentence and there's a lot of commas in between. right? And to make it worse, it's not only a long run-on sentence, but there's a lot of things that Paul's communicating in this sentence. Especially about God's right to do what He wants to do with the lives of sinners to accomplish His purpose. And so, and so this, on many levels, is a difficult passage to de- deal with. And again, being honest, I spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks, really trying to wrap my head around this and how to, how to preach it. I mean, I know what it's saying, but how do I, I communicate it? Because, because I don't want to spend the next couple of months unpacking this text alone, even though we could certainly do that. Again, John Piper spent six years on the book of Romans because there's a lot here, right? And, and, and I don't want to turn this into a classroom lecture Right? Because you know, uh, you know, that is better suited for an in-depth Bible study, though the text warrants that kind of study. And, and, but at the same time, I, I don't want to skip it, and I, do, and I certainly don't want to dumb it down because it's important. I want to explain what God is saying, but I, but, but I also don't want to, to, to preach over everyone's heads and, and lose people in the weeds, so to speak. What I want to do is, is to help you see what God is communicating in this text in a way that helps you to grow closer to Him and causes you to fall more in love with Jesus. I want to preach this in a way that causes you to leave here worshiping God and excited to apply what you learn to your life. I want God's Word to have its effect in your life. Now, now I do. I want you to understand. I want you to be encouraged by the message, and I want it to be a blessing to you. But I don't want to compromise the truths of this text by artificially softening what Paul is saying here either. Because Paul, in his text, deals with some difficult subjects. Subjects, as we've said, people just don't want to hear about. But with that, I love all of you, and I love God and His Word. And so my hope is that what follows does justice to this text, but also helps you to to draw closer to Christ in faith. And so with that, I think the best way to work through this text is kind of pull it apart and work through some of the details so we can kind of, kind of see where Paul is going. Paul in this chapter talks about vessels of God that he shapes as a potter. He writes, beginning in verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump vessels for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which are prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the first thing I think we need to ask is, then what are these vessels that Paul's talking about? The vessels that God shapes and prepares for His own purposes. Well, the simple answer is everyone. That's the simple answer. Everyone is a vessel that God shapes. We are all vessels that God shapes and uses. We are the people whose lives God shapes for His plans and purposes. We, all of us, and everyone you know and everyone you've ever met in your life, are vessels. Believer and unbeliever alike. God uses all of our lives and all of our circumstances and all of our free choices, and He shapes them and He uses them in a way to accomplish His plan for His glory, and remember the promises for our good. The truth is that we are all tools in the hand of God. We are all 
paintbrushes that he's using to paint the canvas of history. God used the late Dr. R.C. Sproul and his program, Renewing Your Mind, to help many people to grow in a deeper understanding of who God is. But God also used Judas and his greed and his decision to betray Christ to bring about the redemption of those who have faith, the very same faith that Dr. Sproul talked about for so many years. All of mankind are tools in the hand of God. All of mankind are vessels that God uses to bring about His plan in history, which means you and I are one of those vessels. And so is your best friends and your worst enemies. God has a plan and a purpose for everyone. And He uses our lives for His glory and good. And again, for the good of those who love Him. That's the promise we hold on to, right? In the darkest of night, we hold on to the promise that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Why? Because God is using and shaping all of our lives to accomplish His will. We are all vessels in His hand. The only question right, that we must ask is, what kind of vessel are we? Are we a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy? Which then leads to the next question. What is, who are the, the vessels of wrath that Paul mentions here? Well, again, Paul says, Has the pot no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, the, again, the simple answer is, the vessels of wrath are people who rebel against God willingly. People who spurn His love and His grace. People who, people who as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, when he wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They actively deny the existence of God. And he, and he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, traded, willingly exchanged, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. They traded God for lesser gods, for the things of their own making. Whether it's the God of money or the God of career or the God of relationships, they willingly deny the rightful place of God in their lives. They hate God and love sin. They are the vessels of wrath. And the thing that we need to understand is that all of mankind began that way. We all did. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, what does Paul says? say? And you, talking to believers, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, vessels of wrath like the rest of mankind. Vessels of wrath is who we all were until God had mercy on us. And this is the thing that we need to keep in mind. Every human being who's ever lived except for Jesus in his incarnation has been a vessel of wrath until God had mercy on them. Every human being who's ever lived deserved nothing from God except his judgment and his wrath. And if God chose to save none of us, God would be completely right and just to do that. He would continue to be perfectly righteous. As we've said, if, you, if, if it were not for God's mercy, no one would be saved. Again, the astonishing truth isn't that God chooses some to be saved. It's the fact that He would choose any of us. Because no one deserves it. It's only because God is gracious and merciful that anyone can be saved. As, and Paul points out in verse 27, 
of this text. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. The, the physical descendants of Israel were numerous, but he says, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully without delay. God will eventually pour out His wrath. And then Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, if God didn't have mercy on some of us and spare some of us, we would become like what? Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God had decided by His own will to, to not have mercy on some of us, all of creation would be wiped out because it's what we deserve. And that's the point. In Genesis 19 is the story of how God judged and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them down to the last person. He killed everyone except Lot and his family. And Paul points to that story to remind us that, that if God didn't have mercy on someone, then literally everybody would be wiped out in His judgment and wrath. And so vessels of wrath are those who deserve just that. And we all were once among them until God had mercy on us. But then who are the vessels of mercy? Well, these are the ones that God has chosen or elected by His own free will to have mercy on. Not because they deserve it, but because God has just decided by His love and grace to show them mercy. It is through His mercy that God brings them into the kingdom, into the family. And again, there are people who, who are not deserving of God's grace and mercy because they have done nothing to make them worthy. God just simply has decided by His own will to show mercy on them and call them to Himself and change their hearts so that they can hear the gospel and respond willingly of their own will and faith. Paul says in verse 24, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, have, as, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you were not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God has chosen for Himself a people of many different people groups of, in different nations out of these vessels of wrath who He selected, not by anything that they've done, not by their, on the basis of their ethnicity or nationality or their family or their, even their own effort. God just chose for Himself a people simply by His sovereign grace. God took vessels of wrath and made them vessels of mercy because He is gracious and merciful. And so vessels of mercy are those who deserve God's wrath. But for some reason, known only to God, He decided to show mercy and redeem them. This is the, again, this is the mystery that, that, that I struggle with. Why would God have mercy on a jerk like me? Now, with that, the harder question, what does it mean that the vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction? Some people think that this means that God is, has made people bad by, and, and so, so He could just destroy them, that God is just mean, that He is just a sadist who created people simply so He can torture them and destroy them. But what we need to realize, that's not the case. In fact, the Bible, the Scriptures paint a different picture. That's not even His nature. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11 we read, Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. I don't think it can get any clearer than that. God says that he does not derive pleasure in the destruction of those who deserve it. Because the wicked deserve it, right? He does not, he does not derive pleasure from, from destroying people who deserve destruction. In 2 Peter we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, at, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God is not some cruel master who makes people evil and causes them to do things they don't want to do. 
He doesn't do that so he can derive pleasure from their suffering. God is good and loving, but God is also just. And sin must be punished. And if God didn't have mercy, all would be lost. But God in His wisdom and His mercy has chosen to redeem some and not others. And again, it's not that God makes them bad to do things. They, they, they choose these things themselves. It's just that God chooses by His own will and mercy to change the hearts of some sinners and not others. Which means ultimately the people that are called vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are those that God just simply leaves to be what they want themselves to be. He simply lets them do what they already want to do. He gives them over to their, their sin that they want to commit. Again, in Romans chapter 1, he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their, their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they willingly of their own accord exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. But the truth is what God simply does is go, Okay, fine. Have it your way. We've all experienced it, I think, where you have somebody that you know and love and they want to make a stupid decision and you reason with them and you talk to them and, and it didn't matter. They just want to do what they want to do and you just can't stop. You just are not going to be able to stop them. And so you go, okay, fine. Let the natural consequences of your actions right, take course. And that's what happens you see, in order for these people to be prepared for destruction, all that's required is for, is for these people to be allowed to live what in the way that they already want to live and to do the things they want to do and to be what they want to be. God just simply gives them over to pursue their sins that they want to their own destruction. They hate God. They want nothing to do with Him. And so God simply just grants their wish. By the way, this is why C.S. Lewis says that hell is a prison with a door that's locked from the inside. And the point that he's making is these people despise God and continue to despise God even as they suffer. They want nothing to do with Him. And so God just simply allows them to go to their destruction. Well, if that's the case, then what does it mean for these vessels of mercy prepared for glory? Well, God has by His sovereign choice, has elected according to His own good pleasure to redeem a people for Himself out of the mass of humanity who is, who's been in rebellion against Him. God, by His own power and grace, comes to some of those who are vessels of wrath and He changes their hard hearts into hearts of flesh. That's what we read in Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God comes supernaturally and takes the hardened rebel who hates him, and he supernaturally changes them from the inside and changes their hearts so they can actually hear and understand the gospel and see who they really are in light of who God is, and so that they can actually see what their greatest need is, is they need to be rescued so that they can actually then freely come to Christ by faith. And if you're in Christ, that is your story, whether you realize it or not. Whether you were saved at five years old or 65 years old. This is my exact story. I grew up hearing the gospel all of my life. Heard it thousands of times probably but it didn't have any effect on me. I hated God. I wanted nothing to do with Him. I believed with all my heart that I was an atheist. I just was simply suppressing the truth in my unrighteousness. And then God, by His own sovereign power, used my circumstances to change my heart. I was not looking for God. I didn't have any desire for Him. But He used my unborn son to bring me to a place where I recognized how desperately I needed Jesus Christ. And with that changed heart, I again heard the gospel. And then it was life to me. And I repented and believed. Had God not done that, I'd have never chosen Him. God in His grace and mercy saved a wretch, a jerk like me, who, by the way, rightly deserved the wrath that, that, that was prepared for me. Right? 
I rightly deserve to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. And here's the thing. If God had not changed my heart, God would have been just to allow me to just go off on my own. I would have never chosen him on my own. As we sang this morning, if you've not loved me first, I'd still refuse you. And my, with my hardened heart, I would have been fine with that. God would have been completely righteous and just to allow me to go my own way to my destruction. But he didn't. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. God chooses some to have mercy on, and he changes their hearts so that he, they can come to faith in Christ. And by faith, people are justified and adopted in his family and are given eternal life, and, and, and they're given a glorious inheritance of heaven. God prepares them sovereignly through justification by faith in Christ, through sanctification by the Holy Spirit working on the inside of them, making them new, and then through ultimately glorification, the glory of being in the presence of God forever in eternity. Now we have a handle on what it means to be vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Let's then come back to the text and summarize what, what Paul is saying here then. The essence of what Paul is saying is this. God has endured the existence of these people who rebel against him. He has endured the existence and the decisions of these people who hate him and want nothing to do with him, who are by their own choices vessels of wrath and are destined for destruction. God has endured them. He has tolerated them and their actions and their blasphemy for a specific purpose. And that purpose, the reason why he would endure such hatred towards him and such blatant disrespect is, is he will use them and, and his wrath to make known the riches, the abundance of his glory the glorious hope that awaits those who trust in Christ, those who are vessels of wrath. God has, has decided by his own will to redeem who were once vessels of wrath, now become vessels of mercy. God endures the blasphemy and rebellion of those who deserve justice in order to demonstrate the glorious hope of those who, who God redeems by faith in Christ. That's what God does. And notice Paul says, he endured them with much patience. God is patient with these people. God is long-suffering with them. Right? Because the truth is they, they deserve death immediately for their sin. Remember what does Paul say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Right? They deserve justice right now. And, and I, I can't overstate this. We live in a world where God graciously allows us to, to wallow and fall down and do stupid things, but they deserve justice right now, right? These people are actively rebelling against God in the moment. They're blaspheming, blaspheming His name right now. They're spurning His grace and spitting on the sacrifice of Christ. I just listened to part of a, a debate where this atheist called God a pathetic imaginary friend in the sky. Whew! I'm like, where's the thunderbolts? You know what I mean? What blatant disrespect, what vulgar disregard for the sovereign king of the universe. The philosopher Voltaire once quipped, the blood of Christ, the blood of pigs. Same difference. I'm like, how, how, does, how do people even form those words? How, do you even, how does that even come out of your mouth? What ugly blasphemy. If God were to wipe out all the sinners on the earth right now, in an instant, he would be justified in doing so. If God were to say, that's it, I've had enough. If you're a mom, you know that, what that's like, right? That's it, I've had enough. He would be, he would be right to pour out his wrath on, on everyone this very moment. But God is patient and he restrains his wrath. And even now, and even more, he's patient. God gives them Abundant grace. We forget that part too, that God gives grace to his enemies. God has given his enemies life. God has given them every breath and every heartbeat. I don't know if you realize, but every breath you take, every beat of your heart is a gift given from God because in any moment he can say, that's it. God gives them life and he gives them more than that, the warmth of the, of the, the, the early summer sun. That he gives them the comfort of the touch of a loved one. How many of you 
We have all experienced that comfort of a hug from someone we care about. He's given them the wonderful taste of food. Praise the Lord for just that by itself, right? <laughs> that's right. He's hungry for lunch right now, so that's okay. Right? He's given them the happiness of having a good day. We've all experienced that, right? Or how about this? The glorious experience of a good night's sleep. There's a few things better than that. We forget as we try to judge God's character by what He does, how God is good and gracious in His common grace, even to His, the, his worst enemies, even to the sinners who will never, ever, ever turn to Him. God is good to them. God was good to Pharaoh. He was rich because God allowed him to be rich. God was good to Judas. We don't think in those terms, but that's the truth. God was good to Pilate. This Roman man who was important, who lived high on the hog. How about this one? God was good to Hitler. We, we don't think in those terms typically, right? But, but Hitler experienced good things in his life by the hand of God. God was good to Osama bin Laden. God is good right now to Vladimir Putin. Putin. Vladimir Putin is alive right now and in the position he's in right now because God has ordained for it to be that way, that God is allowing him to experience goodness. Now, we pray that he would turn and repent and believe, but if he never does, God has still been good to him, even if he still finally meets God's wrath. Make no mistake, God is good to his enemies. Even those who will never, never turn, even those who love their sin and hate God until their dying breath, it was said of Stalin that uh, he hated God so bad that when he was dying, his last breath, he raised his fist to the air and shook it to the ceiling in his last moment of defiance towards God. God was even good to him. God is patient. But understand, his, he's patient for a reason. Because God has a purpose to endure them and be long-suffering with them. Paul tells us the reason for that. He says, God has endured these vessels of wrath with great patience because He desires to show or to demonstrate His wrath and His power to bring justice in and through them. God desires to demonstrate the magnitude of His wrath through them. Why? Well, Paul answers that too. He says, He desires to show His wrath and power in those who rebel against Him because He's sh by showing His wrath, he can make known the riches of His glory to those on which He has mercy. God demonstrates His wrath in order to demonstrate the riches of His glory, which ultimately is our hope. Because what is our hope? Our hope is when we finally are glorified, where we live forever in God's presence, right? When all things are made right, where there is no more pain, where there is no more sorrow, there is no more tears, there is no more death, there is no more sin, there is no more wrath. That's what our hope, all of us, are hoping for. God's desire is to show His wrath through those who reject Him and spurn Him so that the glorious hope of those who trust in Christ can be clearly seen. God's wrath is the dark backdrop that helps us to see the brightness of our glorious hope, which then leads to the big question, how does God's wrath show the riches of God's glory? Now we're finally at the heart of the issue. Why is, is understanding God's wrath so important? Why is it foundational to the gospel? And the answer actually is multifaceted. First, God's wrath and His power to punish sin demonstrates God's justice. This is the truth that is essential for us to understand. God is morally perfect. God is perfect in all of His attributes. And not only is God loving and gracious and all-powerful, but He is also just. God always does what is right. Always does what is right. Which means He then must punish sin and those who sin. Because sin must be punished. And, and here's the thing. This is not news to us. In fact, this is what we expect. This is what you expect. If somebody were to hurt you or someone you love, you want what? You want justice. 
If someone were to murder one of your family members, you would expect that the judge who presided over the case, you would expect that he would hold that person accountable and that they would be punished for what they did. And if they didn't do so, if they just simply let them go free, what would you say of this judge? That they're unjust, that they're evil. We expect it. It's no different with God. If God is good, then He cannot allow sin to go unpunished, not even the smallest ones. Justice demands that He punish sin and sinners, and God's righteous character demands the same thing. And so God pouring out His awful and terrible wrath against those who reject Him and rebel against Him and blaspheme His holy name demonstrates that He is what we expect Him to be, just, righteous, and holy a God who is perfect and pure. And the thing that we need to understand is God actually will be praised and worshiped for His grace, but heaven and earth will also praise Him and worship Him for His justice. Don't believe me? Look at Revelation 16, beginning in verse 4. It reads, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge saying of the wa- uh, water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God will be worshipped for His grace and His justice. And God's wrath demonstrates that justice. Secondly, God's wrath also serves as a warning. In Romans chapter 2, Paul, Paul wrote, or do, you not presume, or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath serves as a warning to those who refuse Him. God warns mankind that sin leads to justice and condemnation. That's why those who go to their condemnation deserve it, because they know. God has revealed it. God's wrath isn't hidden from them. So we can see our only hope is to repent and believe. By the way, that's why the Scriptures refer to often Sodom and Gomorrah, because it's a historical, visible reminder of the price that Rebellion brings. It serves as a warning, calling people to repent and turn towards God. Now, the third thing is God's wrath is the dark backdrop that displays God's glorious mercy in His plan of redemption. In the same way that the dark night sky reveals the glory of the the stars, God's wrath is the great contrast to the glorious hope that awaits those who come to faith in Christ. Paul Washer actually uses this illustration. He says, when you go to a jewelry store and they want to show you diamonds, what do they do? They lay out a little black cloth first and they put the diamonds on there. Why? The black cloth is a perfect backdrop for which you to see the beauty of the diamonds. It's the same thing with God's wrath. The darkness of of God's wrath causes the glorious hope that we have in Christ to shine even brighter. And then fourth, God's wrath demonstrates the love that He has for us. That might seem counterintuitive, but but it's the truth. God's wrath demonstrates the love that He has for us. Just look at the cross. God poured out His wrath that we rightly deserve on His own Son on the cross. If you remember Jesus in the garden, when He went to pray, He sweat, it says, drops of blood. And and, and Jesus prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but your will. Why would Jesus ask for that? Because he knew full well it was going to happen. He wasn't afraid of a Roman cross. He wasn't afraid of dying. He did not want to experience in his humanity the full weight of the wrath of God. But he did anyway. God's wrath against sinners and sin was on full display as Christ suffered and suffocated on the cross. His body struggled 
to breathe as he pushed off with his feet, with a nail in his feet and the nails in his hands, simply trying to get a breath. That's how people die on the cross, by the way. By hanging there, they slowly suffocate to death because their rib cage, their arms come out of socket and then their ribs prevent them from actually being able to breathe. It's a slow, agonizing death. God's wrath was on display as Christ looked to the heavens and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's full wrath was on display as the Father crushed His Son who bore the weight of all of our sins on the cross. God loved the world, as we've been told. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He didn't give Him just so that He can be a teacher He gave him to come and die in our place, suffering the wrath that we rightly deserve. God's wrath clearly demonstrates his love for us. And then finally, God's wrath gives the power, gives great power to the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and what He did for us in His life, death, and resurrection. But Jesus' perfect, obedient life and His atoning death and victorious resurrection make little sense until you understand what it was for, until you understand the bad news. And the bad news is you, like all other people, were born sinful, and by your own free will, and choice, you became rebels against God. All of us have sinned horribly. You have in your life blasphemed God. You have hurt other people. You have betrayed friends. You have lied to loved ones. You have stole. You have gossiped. You have slandered. You have lusted. You have done innumerable sins against God and man. We all have. And because of our sin... The the relationship that we were created for with God was destroyed. And even worse, our sin is so treacherous and such a violation of God's law that we can never make payment for our own sin. That you stand before God and and judged and are sentenced, that that you receive what is rightly due to you and left to your own destiny That's what we're bound for, as we just sang, as I ran, what? My hellbound race. And to make it even worse than that, there's nothing you can do to fix it on your own. You can't change it. What's the answer that all religions have with respect to the relationship with God? You just need to try harder. You just need to work harder. You just need to be a better person. You just need to make your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That's what we're told, right? You need to start doing this and start doing that and start doing this, and you better stop doing that. You need to say the right things. And suddenly it becomes about what you can do for God. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can't do enough to atone for your own sin. You can live a thousand lifetimes and never do enough good to overcome the stain of your sin. And it's not that your good deeds aren't good. It's just your sin is just that heinous. Which means then, left to your own device, you are helpless and hopeless to face God's righteous wrath. But then... God, in His grace and mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect, righteous life that you were required to live, but you couldn't. And and, and He kept the, the very law that all of us have broken. And He earned a righteousness before God that we could never earn. And then if that weren't enough, he went to the cross and by his own blood made atonement for all of our sins and he died in our place. You understand that? Jesus died in your place. And then he was buried and three days later rose from the grave proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do. And what did he promise to do? Make you healthy, wealthy, and happy? That's not what he promised. He promised to save you from your sins and the wrath of God. That's the promise. And the promise is this. If you would repent and believe the gospel, you who were once vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, if you'll repent and believe the gospel, you become vessels of mercy prepared for glory. That's the gospel. God's wrath gives the gospel great power because when you can see that your greatest problem isn't loneliness, 
when your greatest problem, when you can see your greatest problem isn't hunger or desperation or depression or lack of money, when you can see that your greatest problem is the fact that God's wrath is hanging over your head and you can't do anything about it, you finally then can begin to see and understand your need for Christ. And then God makes it easy. He says, what? Start obeying all the rules and go to church six days a week? No. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved is a promise. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. It's that simple. That's the gospel, that God did it all for you so that all you need to do is grab a hold of Christ and hold on to him. Now, what do we do with this then? Because, right, first of all, what we need to do is, is we just need to settle our minds on the fact that in order for there to be good news, there's the bad news. And we need to not shy away from it. And we ought to be not afraid to talk about it with people. And if people get offended by it, remember the Bible says, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's offensive to them. Of course it doesn't make sense to them. But our job isn't to make them believe it. Our job is to proclaim the truth. What do we say? What our job is? Sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change their hearts and never give up. That's what our job is. We need to not be ashamed or afraid of the gospel, even the hard parts. Secondly, if you're not in Christ, if you've not come to faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. The promise is for you that if you will believe that that Jesus died for your sins and was risen for your justification, if you will hold on to him and him alone, you are part of God's family right now and it can never be taken from you. And then for those who do believe, rest in that, that truth. One of the things that really troubles me more than anything else is the legalism that's pervasive in Christianity. Suddenly it's like, okay, now that you're a Christian, well, you better not dress like that and you better not have tattoos and you better not talk like that. And you better stop watching those kind of movies and you better not listen to, to any kind of music that doesn't say Jesus in it and you better start doing this and start, and, and suddenly it just becomes about this set of rules that we're trying to impress God with. You can't impress him. There's nothing in you that deserves God's mercy. He just chose to have mercy on you. So rest in that. Now, obviously, we're called to walk in holiness, but that's going to be the byproduct of God working inside of you, helping you to grow in obedience to His Word. Not to be saved, but because you love Him and you want to honor Him. So rest in Him. And then finally, as we approach Easter, brothers and sisters, the need in our community, there's a lot of needs, but the greatest need isn't more money. The greatest need isn't addiction recovery. The greatest need isn't for marriages to to be made better. The greatest need isn't foster care. The greatest need in our community that will solve all those other problems is Jesus Christ, for people to come to faith and put their hope and trust in Him, that He has the power then to work through us and through our community to fix those other things. What people need more than anything else is Jesus. And let us then be the ones who go out there and share the hope with him. Now, what does that mean? That means get out your sandwich boards and your bullhorns and start standing. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it means, okay? Evangelism for all of us is about going to the people that we're already around and getting an opportunity to share with them the hope that we have. Inviting them to church on Easter, having dinner with them and being able to talk with them about Jesus. There's lots of different ways to do that. Remember, our job is to sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change their hearts and everything. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.